Hi, and welcome to episode 11 of the Hansel and Gretel Code. Ciao. In our last two episodes, we introduced and investigated the second sentence of our fairy tale. And in it, we learned that not only is our woodcutter truly impoverished, he has a family, a wife and two kids that he's um, barely able to feed. Now, as far as metaphors go, we learned a whole hell of a lot about poverty, both the garden variety involuntary type and the more exotic voluntary versions. And speaking of type, we explored the origins of modern typology and discovered that as poor as our woodcutter family is, they have quite a few decks of tarot cards lying around. And a uh, quirk of all quirks, each member of the family identifies with a different suit. You know, wands, cups, coins, and swords. Huh, go figure. Today, we begin the third sentence of our fairy tale and discover that Charles Dickens and the Donner Party have invited themselves to dinner and Dickens has brought along a guest. I'll introduce him in a minute, although before I do, let's just listen to the first three lines of our fairy tale. Es war einmal ein armer Holzhacker, der wohnte vor einem großen Wald. Es ging ihm gar jämmerlich, dass er kaum seine Frau und seine zwei Kinder ernähren konnte. Einsmals hatte er auch kein Brot mehr. Once upon a time. There was a poor woodcutter who lived before a great forest. He had it so rough he could barely feed his wife and two children. And once, there wasn't even any more bread. Aww. So, as I said, we've now got guests. And of course, they're not literal guests, since the fairy tale makes no mention of them. They're metaphoric guests. I'm guessing you've heard of the Downer Party those 19th century pioneers who famously ran out of bread and had to eat, um, leftovers? Ugh, that is so not cool. And of course, most everyone knows Charles Dickens. The guest he's brought along is a certain Thomas Malthus. Who's that? If you've never heard of Thomas Malthus, though, uh, don't worry, neither had I. Old Tom was an 18th century economist who wrote an otherwise famous and influential essay on the problem of population growth. In the essay, he implied that war, famine, and disease were very useful. He called them positive checks on population. And, uh, yeah. Turns out that he was famous enough that Dickens made a cheeky reference to him and his ideas by way of Ebenezer Scrooge. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, said Scrooge, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Part 1 Teil 1. In which we fail to read the fine print, 
and get stuck with a bunch of insurance disclaimers. Speaking of Dickens, hard times can show up in a heartbeat, either for us as individuals or collectively. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time is often the predictable and inevitable outcome of terrible, or at least unfortunate, personal choices. Oh no. Well, it can also come down to a random matter of that famous insurance disclaimer. An act of God. God opens the sea with the blast of his nostrils. Ew. In other words, some natural disaster of, uh, biblical proportion? Like COVID-19. Or maybe just some run-of-the-mill disaster, like an earthquake, a drought, a flood, or... What do you know? A famine. Oh my god. Unfortunately, man-made acts of God are all too common as well. Massive oil spills, a housing or dot-com bubble, maybe a war, a serious crime, or even just a nasty tax hike. No! In short, shit happens. And something we had little or no say in puts the screws to us anyway. Oh, crap. Well, once again, whether or not we can identify any trace of the sublime in our story, or even the fickle finger of some active deity, we now have an overwhelming catastrophe and one hell of a genuine storytelling crisis. Roger that. The manuscript doesn't give us any explanation for the complete lack of food on the woodcutter family table. And given that there's no indication whether this is just a problem for them alone or includes the rest of the population, it's kind of up to our intuition and personal imagination to fill in the blanks. What's weird is that the Grimms never explicitly say there was a widespread famine. Not until their sixth edition in 1843. And while I'm not inclined to just take them at their word in any of this, let's just run with the famine idea, at least for now. You coming, Curtis? Teil 2 In which we have a medieval 9-11 Read about it in the Norwegian novel And seed the Donna party for dinner For Germans and Europeans in general This sudden absence of bread or food in Hansel and Gretel What's well, most plausibly based on the collective experience of the so-called Great Famine of 1315. Now, while there were numerous and severe famines throughout the Middle Ages, this so-called Great Famine is the likeliest suspect. The damn thing lasted three years, took another four years to recover from, and was so overwhelmingly harsh and widespread, it became utterly egalitarian, affecting poor and rich, peasant and noble alike. Ugh. Well, then. In other words, it was a rock and a hard place of apocalyptic proportion. Now, as far as memes go, the severity and reach of this famine embedded itself in the European consciousness and affected changes in behavior in much the same way 9-11 entered and altered the American consciousness. Europe was, in fact, a changed place after this famine. 
especially to the extent that people no longer trusted each other as much as they did before. There had been so much desperation and so much lethal competition for what little food there was, it finally became impossible to trust any and all strangers not to be outright murderers and thieves. History aside, we can all understand the concept of famine, whether we've personally experienced one or not. Certainly we've all been ravenously hungry at some point or another, and if anyone really wants to know what it's like to starve, Newt Homsen's novel, Hunger, provides one humdinger of a vicarious experience. Oh, good. Once again, though, we're looking for metaphoric meaning here. So if we want to get at the jewels in this story, we've got to consider this fairy tale bread and its complete absence to be symbolic of something, something other than literal food or famine. Unless we happen to be or have been homeless and starving ourselves, we'd otherwise have no right whatsoever to identify with this family and their current plate. We could only pity them. So unless we see this whole business as metaphor, we'd be stuck with a completely abstract, absurdly anemic, and I gotta say, shamefully narcissistic faux problem. That, that's bad. Of course, there's nothing abstract about food or hunger. Eh, that's just the point. It makes for an excellent metaphor. Food and hunger is such a concrete, visceral concept, it can easily stand for something that we've all experienced. Meaning, some absolutely vital something we all know and recognize, and that is now either in short supply or completely missing from our own lives. Something that we absolutely need for the sake of life and consciousness. Some something that, if it disappeared, we'd become absolutely desperate. Desperate enough to steal, and maybe even desperate enough to go the Donner Party route. So what is that vital thing? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Part 3. Teil 3. In which life throws us a limbo party to see how low we can go. The story tells us that the literal vital thing that's missing is bread. And while it's obvious that as far as figures of speech go, bread is a very common rhetorical trope, technically known as a synecdoche. Huh? Well, that just means using the word bread to mean food of any kind. Or even having it mean cash, if anyone still insists on treating our woodcutter's poverty as something literal. All right, if you insist. What about bread, though, as a very meaty, or meatless, metaphor? What can bread symbolize? What? Now, before I name some of the possibilities, it's important to remember the context that we've so far established. The likelihood that we're dealing with the connection between consciousness and the unconscious. And if our poor woodcutter and his family represent a barely maintained consciousness, 
This sudden lack of food, the metaphoric substance maintaining that consciousness, well, it means that the bottom of consciousness has suddenly dropped out. Are you kidding me? Well, we're not talking about anyone going into a coma, which we've already mentioned as one way of thinking about a sudden and complete loss of consciousness. We are still talking about degrees or levels of consciousness. Jung had a phrase for this that he borrowed from the French psychiatrist Pierre Janet. Ooh la la. Abaisement du niveau mental. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, pardon my French. No. It sort of translates into a lowering of the level of mentality or consciousness. And the best way to understand it might be to remember that this is what people mean when they're talking about the so-called reptilian brain. In other words, the way we think and act when our so-called reptilian brain is in charge. Oh, really? And there are many different degrees of this and plenty of benign examples. Although benign as they are, they can still land us in hot water. So anything done out of fear, for instance, or anything done absent-mindedly or by force of habit. And we could be talking about this on an individual basis. By simply and carelessly uh, getting drunk, say, or failing to read the fine print, or even falling asleep at the wheel. Uh-oh. We could also be talking about a more collective situation, by following the crowd and parroting some popular opinion, or getting involved in a questionable crowd and succumbing to peer pressure, or even mob mentality. Just as some um, certain people wearing certain red hats spent their um, red-letter day in our nation's capital? Oh, and I suppose you think that's funny, huh? This lowering of our level of consciousness, our degree of conscious awareness and control over our own behavior, that can sometimes be just as dangerous psychologically as it can be physically. Severe enough, in fact, to indicate a major depression with its attendant risk of suicide, or even a full-blown frank psychosis with all the trimmings, hallucinations, delusions, and bizarre catatonic behaviors. I ain't never seen nothing like that before. Obviously, the fairy tale doesn't give us anything resembling psychosis. Not until we get to the psychopathic behavior of the gingerbread witch, and certainly not at this point in the story. Although we are being forced to talk about something terribly problematic. Something with very serious consequences. What are they? The story is telling us that something has happened to overtake and overwhelm our own capacity for and level of conscious awareness. No way. And yes, we are indeed talking about ourselves here, since we're bound to identify with the plight of this family, just by the very nature of good storytelling, not to mention the immense and magical power of metaphor. Maybe. So let's just take a step back and have a think. What is this thing that most effectively feeds consciousness, what it so desperately and instinctively needs and even hungers for? What is it that strengthens consciousness against sinking into boredom, depression, or even insanity? And why is it so poorly available in this story, and by extension, 
even in our own lives. And why is there now such an acute and absolute lack of it? Who cares? Could this thing just be ego? Is that what we're talking about? Something obviously necessary and easily enough propped up, although pretty leaky and precarious, even in the best of times. And just what the hell is ego anyway, beyond some fragile sense of self requiring constant effort and resources of reassurance, lest it find itself crushed or laid low by the force of any random troll or some stronger opponent or rival. You give up now? I just don't think so. Well, the Grimms, being fervent Christians, they give us their answer in the form of a convenient religious trope. Funny enough, coming from them, it's actually a helpful clue. Although not necessarily the right answer. Let's see if you can figure this out. No pressure. No one else has yet. Part 4 Teil 4 In which we turn to prayer as an answer to all our questions. As I said, it wasn't until the 1843 edition that the Grimms added the specific idea of famine to our story. And all that did was tell us that our bohemian family breadwinner was not directly to blame for the sudden lack of bread. Aww. Right from the get-go, though, their first 1812 edition, they had already thrown in their two cents to answer the question of what the bread was meant to symbolize. So let's kill two birds with one stone and listen to that later version of the story. And just so you know, this is from a very nice LibriVox recording of Hansel and Gretel that's read by Bob Neufeld. Hard by a great forest dwelt a poor woodcutter with his wife and his two children. The boy was called Hansel and the girl Gretel. He had little to bite and to break, and once, when great dearth fell on the land, he could no longer procure even daily bread. Well, there it is. An unmistakable reference to the Christian Paternoster, the Our Father. And that their daily bread of the prayer is still edible food, of course. And yet, given the context, it's also something else. Something transcendent numinous or otherwise sacred. I guess we could even say manna from heaven. Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, if we're going to allow for this hyper-Christianized clue added by the fervently Calvinist Grimms to enter our discussion, then I still gotta ask. What is this transcendent, numinous thing that food, in the form of Hansel and Gretel bread, represents to Western consciousness, and not just in Christianity and Christian prayer, or even in Old Testament manna. Remember, this metaphor has to hit home with every single one of us, regardless of our religious preferences. Otherwise, our fairy tale is just some Bible-thumping Calvinist propaganda story. For the love of everything sacred and holy, would you please shut your yappa? See, it's all too easy to give a rote, catechetical response to this question, which is pretty much what the Grimms have done, and which is how much of Christian religion is taught and learned. 
and the same again and again and again. Repetitive. And yet, full-blooded, honest fairy tales are not meant to paper over the abstractions of life or parrot the nostrums of any religion. No, sir. Limiting our understanding of fairy tale metaphors to abstractions of belief, religious or otherwise, it cuts them off at the roots so they're no longer alive or connected to the vital human experience that once gave them life. So in attempting to find and restore that vitality, is it valid for us to say this prayerful daily bread is, just as the Grimm's revisions imply, a religious or sacramental grace? Why the fuck not? Oh, sure, maybe in the Middle Ages. Given the enormous power and influence of the Vatican over the life and liberty of just about everyone living in Europe, this would have been a perfectly adequate explanation. Even a numinous experiential metaphor. That's correct. Not now, though. And certainly not for everyone. Still, given the fact that this story might have been written back in the Middle Ages, we're going to have to see if calling this bread soul food is indeed the right call. Well, I am getting a little hungry. Right, yeah, let's get some food and plan out this next adventure. Well, in our next episode, we're going to find out exactly why calling this bread soul food is pretty much right on the money. Cha-ching! And in order to prove that, we're going to have to go out grocery shopping. We're also going to have to take another trip on the time machine. Because there's an old Roman recipe for soul food that uh, we have to authenticate. And once we get that straight, we're going to go even further back in time so we can crash the most famous Super Bowl party in history and watch the play of the millennial. What? Um, I mean, the play of the millennium. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks for listening. I sure hope you're enjoying the story so far, because I sure as hell enjoy sharing it with you. And if you would please, please, please share it with someone you think might enjoy it too, that will um at least make uh, like three of us. Oh my god. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti. Ciao, ciao.